Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people past and present, black and white, who with faith and focus are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is the Gist of Freedom, and you're listening to Leslie Gist, and we have a great show on this Christopher Columbus Day. Um, we have guests out of California. Gentlemen, are you on the line? Um. I'm here, Terry Boykins. Yes, and uh, this is Rekirby Hines. Hi, Rekirby. Terry, I know who you are. We've interviewed you a few times. Let's start with Rekirby. Rekirby, could you just uh, introduce yourself briefly to the audience? Sure, sure. Uh, well, I am a, I'm a playwright. Uh, I'm also a professor at the University of California, Riverside, where I teach playwriting, screenwriting, and uh, hip-hop theater. And um, I have uh, been a resident of Riverside, California, for uh, about 20 years or so now. I'm missing a couple of years in between. But um, I am also the, the author and, and the writer of uh, the play Dreamscape, which is um, we are producing uh, this week at, uh, in Riverside, in the city of Riverside. And the play itself deals with an incident that happened back in 1998 um, between the police and the African-American community. Okay. Uh, without giving away too much of the plot, tell us uh, what inspired you to have this play at this moment in time. I know you said this incident happened in 1998, but what sparked your interest to say, let's, you know, it's time to produce this play? Well, um, the play is called Dreamscape, and, and the quick synopsis is uh, it's based on the shooting of a young lady named Taisha Miller, who um, was uh, 19 year old, 19 years old, and she was sitting in a in a car at a gas station in Riverside, and she was subsequently shot by uh, four different police officers 12 times. And um, it's actually a play that I have been that I wrote and directed and have been touring for the past three years. So it's um, you know the, the 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 incidents that have happened over the next year or so um, weren't necessarily the spark for the production and the performance of the play. It's something that I've been doing for the past, like I said, for the past three years. And you know the 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 dilemma is that I continue to have situations and instances like Trayvon Martin uh, or the situation in Ferguson without Michael Brown. 
uh, that bring these types of situations and these types of conversations uh, back to the forefront. Okay. Now, do you have a call of action at the end of the play? What happens at the end? What do you expect your audience members to do once they view this play? Well, you know, as as an artist, we, we you know, all communication is intended for people to take action. So even the show, by the fact that it's communicating with people, the intention is that they will take some type of action. Um, for me, the, the the play and the subsequent dialogue at the end of the play is intended to um, to begin some type of a dialogue that will move us towards uh, a space where we coexist as human beings. Now, I know that's pretty broad and it's not as radical as, you know, some may want it to, to be said, but um, the, the the idea is that we, you know, for, for me, the broader picture of this play is that there's a 19-year-old uh, African-American woman who's no longer with us, and whatever she might have brought to the table that would have made our lives or her family's lives uh, different is no longer in, in existence. And so it okay. begins with that broad view, but clearly we are dealing with, you know, it, it speaks specifically about the tenuous relationship between the African-American community and law enforcement that, um, you know, has been part of our history as Americans and continues to be, uh, you know, a negative uh, neg negative interaction for in, in more cases than, than it should be. That's so true. Now, you already have some callers on the line. Um, let's see if they have anything to say. Most times they don't. Uh, but I will open up the lines. Uh, we have extension, uh, last two digits, 54 and 80. I'm going to turn on your mic, and if you feel like saying something or asking questions, you can do so. If not, you can just continue to be silent, and we'll continue the conversation. 54, you're on the line. Good afternoon. This is your man, Terry Tyler Major, uh, dialing in to join you on the call. How are you doing today? Great. We're so happy that you can make it. Um, could you briefly uh, introduce yourself to the audience? We have Ter we have the Kirby and we have Terry Boykin. Yes, this is Imam Terry Tyler Major, one of the okay. uh, creators, I guess, of Blurred Lines, uh, of which Dreamscape is a part of. And I'm the um, executive chair for the NAACP, uh, who is charged with sitting on a series of programs as an answer to uh, excessive violence in our communities. Okay, wow, that that is that is extremely positive, and I'm happy to hear that's refreshing to hear that the NAACP is doing something, um, you know, proactive and radical, for lack of a better term. But tell us, you know, how did you connect with uh, Mr. Kirby, and, you know, just give us an idea. Well, you know, I, I was uh, invited to a play uh, about a year or two ago by my wife, and I didn't know much about it, but it was to the Dreamscape presentation being held at UC Riverside. And I was familiar with the Taisha uh, Miller case. Uh, it happened about two miles from my mother's home uh, where I grew up. And so when I saw the play, I was so moved uh, by the reenactment of the play, the information. It was just surreal. And uh, I was really looking forward to an opportunity where we could bring this play back and more people could see it and really join this conversation that, um, you know, as Kirby said, it's, 
we need to exist and coexist together, but we have this excessive force and, and so forth that we're dealing with with the police, and it seems to have escalated under the age of Obama. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I was going to ask you the same question I just asked Mr. Kirby, which is, what is your call of action? And you just hinted to it um, when you mentioned President Obama. And I'll just, uh, you know, disclose something quickly that I am a Obama uh, supporter, have been since he came onto the national stage um, and was the keynote speaker at the Democratic National Convention. So I'll just tell you that right up front. But what do you expect the audience members to do once they view this play? You said it's very emotional, but how do you think um, this play can help the NAACP and help the community at large? I think some of the things that we need to push for are uh, full-time cameras worn by law enforcement. Uh, We give law enforcement a sacred trust to police our streets and to protect us. And any type of excessive force or unlawful use of of weapons is a violation Mm -hmm. of that sense of trust. And so I would hope that uh, one of the movements that comes out of this uh, play and and the Blurred Lines movement is a push for 24-7 police cameras, which have shown uh, statistically to lower the cases of excessive abuse and abuse of power, as well as to get the community activated to take action, to get involved with the voting process, to get involved with uh, their, so, their civil government, and get off the sidelines. I mean, life is a participation sport, not a spectator sport, and I think we're allowing too many things to happen on our watch, and we need to get roll up our sleeves and get active. That's active when the police kill one of our young people, or that's active when another one of our young people kill one of our young people. Uh, the end result is that we've lost another potential um, you know, leader amongst our community, and this has to stop. Do you see a connection between, and you could jump in too, uh, Terry's waking oh, up. Do, oh, do you see a connection yeah. between the police violence or a correlation between the rise of police violence and the rise of gang violence, or do you think they're one and the same, or if you were to eliminate one, if you were to eliminate police violence, would you think that the gang violence would also uh, be eliminated, or would it, you know, go the opposite direction and go take on um, a new height? Terry, well, yeah, well, I, I think in in in, in giving respect to both, you know, Kirby and, and his uh, artistic abilities and Terry and his community engagement, um, I think they're <clears throat> how are they correlated? Uh, one of the things that I believe is occurring um, is the lack of engagement uh, within the African-American community uh, to take a proactive um, stance on either front. Um, why are we not more engaged with uh, the, the needs of gang members? Uh, what exactly, who's meeting with them? Uh, how are they engaging with them? You know, what are the issues? And then also, too, with regards to the law enforcement um, what exactly are we doing prior to uh, situations jumping off as deep as they have been? Uh, why are we not at the um, police review, the police commission? Why are we not at city council meetings? 
Why are we not at school board meetings? Why are we not introducing those young men that are uh, possibly gravitating to gangs, you know, to civil uh, activities uh, before they become in a combative or an attack situation uh, within law enforcement? So, you know, we are a reactionary society. Uh, we wait until death occurs, until we raise up on the streets. Um, however, the meetings that are present are week in and week out, and we're not there. Uh, if anyone's been to a school board meeting uh, in the last month, um, you may, you may, you may, uh, if there's no conflict, um, just a straight school board meeting, you may have one African-American person there, and they probably are from the local newspaper. Uh, the question becomes this is what true. exactly this is true uh but for um let me just um ask the question how many times have you seen an advertisement for these meetings because I also work in the school system and they keep it hush hush they they do not publicize um the PTA meetings the board meetings you have to look for these meetings so if they don't want you involved they're going to make sure that they remain a, a meeting in private. So how do we, especially the black people that are involved, you know, summon up the courage to allow the public to get involved and to say, you know, this meeting is taking place, you have power, and this is where you need to be on this certain day. But it seems as though that these politicians know who to tap and who to ask to be a part of these meetings because they're, they're reassured that these are the types of black people that will not empower their own community. So how do we tell the people, the grassroots people, who are not not even aware that these things are taking place, that they're happening? Well, I think you know you 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 hit on some some key terms. Number one, grassroots. Uh, number one, the people. Uh, if you're in the know and you're keeping, if these are issues are important to you, you're going to find out what's going on. Uh, if there's a concert by a major artist that comes into town. Uh, if Jay-Z hit Riverside right now with nobody knowing he was coming to the town, that word would hit the street in nanoseconds. And so the question is, when it comes to a welfare of our children, why are we not finding out when these meetings are going on? These are public servants. They are public meetings. The question is, who's keeping the finger on the pulse at the grassroots level um, to ensure that word hits the street? There is information of tweets going out emails going out, e-blasts going out. I have yet to see anyone put an e-blast out about a county board of supervisors meeting, a city council meeting, a school board meeting, uh, but I will get emails about a party that's going on, uh, about a uh, particular fundraiser that's going on. So are the, the members, question, the question, I'm sorry? Are the, members, are the members of these boards, especially the African-Americans, are they tweeting and sending out blasts about these meetings? Absolutely not. That's my point, is that we have Absolutely people, not. And, we, and these are the people who are more detrimental to our community, more so than President Obama. I think these are the people who do more damage um, than anyone else in our community. They are the worst people when it comes to politics than, than we ever experienced in, in the state of his, uh, black history. They are the worst. But they have. Yeah, and I agree. But I think about the 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 reason why things are able to proceed the way they do is, and if these people, you know, across the country or in districts across the country and jurisdictions, 
Um, if we know that, and they are the worst, the question is, when do we take action to hold them accountable, and do we go to where they meet to do that particular bidding? Um, the, and, and that's something that we have to become able to own up on, is do we frequent these decision-making places of business as much as we should? Right. And that's a, that's an excellent point. And thank you for uh, articulating it much better than I could and with less emotion. Um, we have someone else on. We have three people on the line. And I want to ask the next question um, as far as the playwriting. When you look at the plays and, you know, we look at Tyler Perry and we look at all these, um, these different um, reality shows and we know that black theater is really suffering what do you think needs to be done as a playwright to make um, this a more powerful tool when you have so much competition with cell phones and all sorts of technology? You know, how do you uh, lure young people into accepting the plays, the, the plays as a mechanism for fighting um, injustices? Huh. Well, that's, you know... Um what I do, and, and usually I, I try to answer the questions with what I do, what I do is uh, the type of work that I do uh, is I call hip-hop theater. And what it does is it uses elements of hip-hop culture, uh, the performative elements of hip-hop culture to tell stories and to deal with issues um, that, I, that I believe are relevant, not to just the youth, but to the entire community. And so uh, by beginning in a place of familiarity, a lot of times when we deal with theater, when people think about it, talk about theater, they think of, they, uh, we immediately go to Shakespeare and we think, oh, you know, right. it's going to be that kind of a form. And then as an African-American community, then the, the next step is we go to, you know, the Tyler Perry type of work, which is, you know, has its own, um, it has its own issues and it has its own benefits to it. You know, the gospel mm -hmm. musical, which is essentially the type of work that Tyler Perry does, as a genre of theater, it's a viable, dynamic, interesting form of theater. However, the practitioners of this form will often say to you, I'm not a playwright, I'm not an artist, I'm a minister. And by saying that, essentially what they're saying is, I, I do not need to put in the work to make this an excellent piece of theater because God has given it to me this way and I'm going to just give it to you the way God gave it to me. Therefore, I don't need to do rewrites, I don't need to really do rehearsals, I just need to cast somebody who can sing really well and the people will mm -hmm. show up. And actually it works. You know, we can fill the worst Wilshire ego with 2,500 people. And so there's this mm -hmm. dilemma of dismissing that, that particular genre of theater, which, once again, I don't dismiss as a form, but as the way it's executed. Um, as far as getting, you know, we're not, as a country, we're not a country that goes to the theater. Um, and also we have to understand that we have young people who 22 out of the 24 hours of the day when they're, they're awake, they're exposed to what you just mentioned, cell phones and different forms of entertainment. So when we create work, we should create it with that in mind. I'm not saying create plays that happen on a cell phone um, or, you know, with the use of a cell phone, but there are theaters and other places where they're, they're having interactive forms of, of, of theater uh, where, you know, they're creating work with the dynamic understanding that, this is a generation that functions in, you know, in 124 characters on a, 
on Twitter and um, you know two minute videos on YouTube. So understanding that and not dismissing it as a as a problem, but but looking at how to build on what is already being done is is one way to approach approach um, creating work for this generation. Um, the work that I do, the play uh, that I'm doing, Greenspan uses beatboxing as a primary element on the stage. Uh, and it's integrated into the story so that the play is not about a beatboxer, but it uses that form of expression to help tell the, the, the primary story. So that's, that's what I do. And, and there are other artists who are doing this type of work as well with visuals, with dance and movement, um, with the integration of videos and other forms into their work. Uh, so that, once again, we can we can tell different stories than what are being told on TV and in, in movies and even in video games to, to this generation to give them uh, a little bit more uh, information and, and, and education, possibly. Wonderful. And Mr. Major, are you still on the line? I don't think so. Who do we, uh, I think we still have Cherry Boykins on. Yeah, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Uh, Mr. Boykins, you you listen to the professor talk about um, the playwrights and how he's weaving technology into and music into his genre to attract young people. Um, right now, we have um, a serious um, base that's growing uh, grassroots activists in Ferguson. Um, these young men showed uh, great uh, courage when they were being assaulted by the military um, police. And I think as the NAACP and as activists, and you, you use the analogy, if there was a concert, Jay-Z concert, people would be showing up. The same analogy is true if we had some activists who were sincerely trying to recruit members, they would show up to Ferguson and be there in a heartbeat to try to tap into this source that is seriously wanting to uh, want to make, make a change and is really doing it. So how is the NAACP um, working with the, what, uh, what what are you guys doing to tap into that resource and make that the um, the launching pad for the new generation of activists. Okay. And, and I would say that um, the way that we bring all of our young people to a point of activism is, and, and the way the NAACP can play a role in that is networking our resources together and, and communicating. You know, the revolutions have always begun on the college campuses with young people. I can remember mm -hmm. back in 1978 uh, protesting against apartheid um, at a young age and, and just being on the tip of the spear with that with that movement. I think the young people would benefit uh, from being a part of all of these programs and then also being given some responsibility and, and being listened to because obviously they want their concerns to be heard and we as the adult community need to listen, not only listen to those concerns, but take action on those concerns. And so the NAACP will be networking uh, we've been meeting with our brothers and sisters in Los Angeles and the Southern California area, and we'll continue this movement. Really, we call it a movement because this problem didn't happen in hatch overnight. 
and I don't think it's going to be solved overnight. It's not going to be solved with one program. It's not going to be solved with one event. But I think the, the impetus is that we recognize that there's a problem, and we are duty-bound to find a solution and to work consistently and diligently towards that solution until we find some type of uh, breathing room, so to speak. One of the but things that, any, that we want to... <clears throat> I was just wondering, is, is there any initiative for, um, that the NWCP has devised that is targeting the Ferguson community to say, as a national organization, we are going down there to do X, Y, and Z? Not per se, um, and, and that's a good point. Uh, I think Ferguson is um, is a mirror for the rest of the nation. Um, there is little Ferguson's going on all over America and all over the world. I think what we what we need to do is is you know collectively address this concern and say, hey, you know what, enough is enough. We need to stop killing ourselves, and we need to raise our standards in our community so that we no longer allow bloodshed of our young superstars at the hands not only of each other, of gangbangers, and certainly not the police. And I think when we begin to raise that standard nationwide, we can lock arms on a universal level and say, you know what, these guys are important to us, and we're going to do something about it individually and collectively. So we're working in Moreno Valley and Riverside. There's groups working in Pasadena and Los Angeles right now. And I think that we can learn from them, they can learn from us, and hopefully we can network and share information. Uh, we have uh, the access to uh, media and uh, multimedia at this time. So we'll take advantage of all of the things available to us and see if we can further uh, this cause as we move forward. And this question is for everyone. Um, I was really shocked and amazed when I learned that um, Darren Wilson, the policeman that was involved with the shooting of Mike Brown, the department that Darren Wilson came from was a neighboring was from a neighboring town of Ferguson, and the police department was shut down by the council, um, the board, um, as a result of too many expensive lawsuits um, pertaining to to uh, police brutality. So it was news to me. I had never heard of a police department being shut down. But now that we know, um, I think we should all study it. And when we have these types of situations in our community, we should learn from that town and do the same thing. Um, can anyone, you know, uh, address that concern and that strategy? Well well, you know, one of the things that came out of the Taisha Miller uh, incident back in 1998 was uh, the formation of a police, uh, citizens police commission uh, that interacts with the city and, and with, the, with the police department on an ongoing basis uh, here in the city of Riverside. And, you know, I'm sure there, there are statistics and information that can, that can show the difference between before and after that commission was put in place. But I think it speaks to what Terry Boykin was, was, was talking about, which is the, the involvement of the community and, and regular citizens in civic duties or civic activities that, um, you know, whether or not they're, they're, they come about as a result of a tragedy or whether or not, you know, there are things that are ongoing, such as, you know, school board meetings and, um, 
you know, uh, city council meetings and, and these other places where decisions are made that affect us more immediately than the national or even statewide decisions affect us. Uh, I think that that type of involvement uh, does make a difference. I've, I've, you know, I've, because of the play, I've been in, involved with uh, speaking at the at the Citizens Commission. I've, you know, they've they've been involved with the play itself and and creating community dialogue um, uh, through the performance itself. I actually. Um, <laughs> I, I actually met with one of the officers who was involved with the incident, uh, who uh, who got in touch with me after one of the or during well before one of the performances, and I invited him to come and see the play. And you know he was reluctant to do so, but but um, I think these types of things that that once again, I, and I talked initially when you asked me what what was the takeaway that I anticipated, you know. Um, that, and, and I talked about this idea of dialogue. What I find fascinating is uh, a lot of times these, the type of conversations that maybe I had with, with this officer for an hour uh, may not necessarily happen until something tragic happens. And so, you know, one of the things that, that I would hope would be the outcome of, of this play is, is that audiences or whoever sees the play uh, come to see this character, and, and this character is based on Aisha Miller. It's not a recreation of her life, but come to see the character as, as a as a person, as a human being that that has been lost to us. And um, you know, I think Terry Terry Major might have mentioned you know that in regards to once again the the incidents going on in, in Ferguson and the losses that we're having of young people who. Um, you know, who may go on to to make changes in our in our existence. Well, you know, this is this is Terry Boykins uh, recurring. That's, that's that's good perspective. But you know, let's go back to what exactly happens in a lawsuit. Um, there's underwriters, uh, and those lawsuits are protected by insurance policies. So law enforcement across this country have already taken the necessary risk management um, to get sued uh, or to. Uh, recognize the risk that something will happen. And so these underwriters, these policies, what people pay into as taxpayers to ensure that should something occur and we are sued, that we have a policy that underwrites the damages that are going to be mitigated against us. These are the kinds of things, and Terry, I know it comes in from the financial world, but they have put things in place that, you know, if something occurs, one of our officers is found guilty of misconduct, um, we have invested in a policy um, that will basically not damage the department because there's uh, insurers that will basically pay out to that particular um, uh, plaintiff um, or that particular um, entity um, to ensure that, um, those funds are being transacted, whether it's a $2 million policy, it's a $50 million lawsuit, those things are all covered. Um, this is what we don't get involved in. Well, I bet you most citizens don't even understand how much um, underwriting on the, the police department for those particular issues uh, are in place. That's on one thing with regards to, you know, this particular situation of law enforcement coming from different jurisdictions. Uh, I'm sure we don't even understand the the, the, um, the the legalities of the funding particular. Now, the other, and going back to Terry Major, um, who I've known for 30-something years, 
um, and have worked very closely. But with the NAACP, once again, we are waiting until the last minute to build a relationship with our youth. Uh, we don't have a good relationship with our youth with regards to these organized uh, agencies and organizations, uh, and we only begin to incorporate them when something occurs. The question is, what is happening in the meantime to truly advance who they are and how they're engaged in the community? And, you know, we are, we are waiting even with our own communities until something to happen to engage our youth, and we cannot afford to continue to do that. Um, the college campuses, uh, being a member of, a, uh, of the Divine Nine uh, as a Kappa, um, that is an entire community. But what happens to the young man that doesn't go to college? Uh, where are the relationships with those individuals uh, that may be in street life? that may not necessarily be enrolled in school, uh, who's going out to reach him or her in the parks, on the streets, in the clubs. We cannot, be con- we, we cannot continue to be afraid of our young people and say we're only going to come and get you guys when there's a problem. Uh, there's got to be some strategies in place, and there's got to be teams of individuals who know what they're doing to engage youth that are willing to be a part of these organizations that can help get out and recruit and engage and have them um, included uh, in the process and not wait till you know, somebody gets shot and then everybody flies into town and, you know, they get the big banner. Uh, I don't think that's a smart way to do things. I, I, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, one strategy I was thinking about, I, I've been watching or reading closely, the story in Pittsburgh where the police uh, union is mm-hmm. fighting the um, council people because the council people uh, want to keep intact a law they had on the books for decades, primarily when the community was mostly white, where it was mandated that the police officers had to live or reside in that town or in that city. But since the demographics has changed, the union, the police union, has now um, demanded that their officers should be able to live within 50, um, outside, 50 miles outside of the community. What is your take on when the demographics change, the policies change, and as I said before, we have um, figureheads, African-American figureheads, that will sit on these boards and allow these policies to be changed, knowing the end result, and yet they keep quiet. Um, well, I would, I would say this is Terry. Yeah, this is Terry, Imam Terry Tullet Major. Um, to that point, mm-hmm. and, and to one of the other outcomes we hope to uh, to reach uh, through this uh, blurred lines movement is some type of civilian oversight uh, with some type of uh, uh, documentable uh, authority, um, so that people can lose jobs, heads can roll. Uh, if they do have policies, you know, when you take uh, with the way the insurance underwriters and the actuaries work. Once that policy becomes too risky uh, or too risk averse, uh, they will they will refuse to continue to insure you. So we need to start banging these uh, insurance policies with lawsuits uh, generated from factual evidence through cameras, video cameras, and all kinds of evidence that technology is bringing uh, to the table. But the studies do show that when police are part of the community or the environment that they are policing that relationships are better, crime is down, 
And so we have to begin to look at this from an economic point of view because for every murder, it's going to cost a million to a million and a half dollars to investigate. Well, if I have a police officer around that can reduce the murder, then, you know, if I can save a million and a half dollars, maybe I can subsidize his uh, his living situation. They have living programs now where, um, you know, lenders will give uh, half price or, or, you know, incentives for law enforcement and teachers to live in the communities where they work. So they, the African-American oversight or the city council who is on that, uh, they should not give in because we need officers to be accountable because studies definitely show that if you know me and we have a relationship, it's far less likely that you're going to go off the handle and pull your gun out prematurely and shoot me. Well, Terry, with that, and this this is why I'm saying economics, and I'm a firm believer in economic power. I guarantee you what's being attacked uh, is not necessarily all the right area. With, find out who are the underwriters, who are the actuaries, find out where the policies, and when you start talking about pet- petitioning a insurer, and you've got people saying, wait a minute, you guys have got a lot of noise and petitions coming from the community at XYZ City Police or um, jurisdiction, we don't believe that is a good investment for our policyholders that underwrite the money that goes to pay out these suits. We're not targeting those areas. We're basically saying, okay, you know, let's let's go get the cops, and we should go get those individuals that are doing wrong and, and acting, um, you know, very abrasive uh, with our community and with our youth. But if we want to really hit some people, and I think Terry hit it very nicely, what about the task force that says, okay, you know what, you guys deal with that over here. We're going to go after where the money's coming from. If you follow the paper trail, you follow the money trail, and if you've got people that stop writing policies, a city's law enforcement will not be able to function because they are not going to put those guns on the street and risk their officers being sued because now you're basically in a situation where you can bankrupt a city. If if one right. thing goes wrong, you can bankrupt a city. Right. Correct. And that's exactly what happened in the town, the neighboring town of Ferguson. And what you're saying is accurate throughout history. There are cases when slave revolts uh, were taking place. Um, most slave revolts included burning down buildings and homes and farms and plantations. And the Philadelphia Insurance Company refused to write any policies um, to any uh, slaveholders in the South because it was becoming too expensive. So, um, those revolts and those burnings did take effect on the abolition. The I'm sorry, the abolishment of slavery, uh, because the, as you said, the money trail, the, the backers uh, didn't find it to be any, you know, wasn't profitable anymore. Uh, but um, that was an excellent point. But also the hiring practice. Can anybody talk about hiring these, these police officers who who are brutal? Um, that have records that come from other um, communities, and just outright hiring people for nepotism, and 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 the um, the credentials, you know, the qualifications to become a police officer, you know, they're very low. So, could someone address that concern? Why are we hiring thugs in our neighborhoods? And how? Well, you know, I think they're, they're sliding under they're sliding under the radar because actually, what's happening the last, is the last, um, question, the last part of the question is. We need to hold 
these people who are hiring these um, thugs accountable. So well, it, 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 I think we need to go backwards uh, one step further. It's it's like the uh, the uh, you know some of these SAT exams or the uh, IQ exam. These exams right. are tricks from the very beginning. They're measuring the wrong thing. Uh, I was in a meeting with the uh, chief of police of Moreno Valley uh, three weeks ago, actually three weeks, two weeks ago today, and he boasted mm-hmm. about having 100,000 applicants to hire 37 or 47 officers. And my contention mm-hmm. is simply this. If it takes you that many applicants to get that many officers and the officers that are coming through are beating the brains out of innocent citizens, we need to change the filters and the questions that are being asked. The whole system is broken because at the end result, you do have a limited amount of people who came out of the funnel, but the funnel is corrupt. And we need to go back in and ask some different kinds of questions because a lot of these guys got their lunch money taken. They have an ax to grind. Now they have a gun and a a lenient uh, uh, policy and procedure uh, behind them where they can get away with absolute murder. And we need to go to the core of these issues. We need to attack policy. If, 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 If these people are going and the police department is saying the killing was within policy, then policy needs to change. If these Correct. officers are killing people and there's 100,000 applicants and 47 get hired, then all of the questions that are on those questionnaires need to be abolished, and we need to have a citizen panel design a program that, at the end result, produces excellent human beings who can provide the police services that we so desperately count on them to do. Anyone else? That's an excellent response. Anyone else want to talk about the hiring practices of the local police well, department? Uh, well, Kirby, are you, did you want to chime in? No, well, you know, one of the things, I mean, speaking specifically about the, uh, the uh, one of the officers uh, had been on the force for six months, and he's the one that actually talked about. And uh, most of the, the, the folks out there that evening, were uh were new to the force or you know once again it goes back to how you hire and, and so, sorry Kirby, your your phone sounds a little muffled. Your phone sounds a little muffled oh, like you're underwater. I'm Am sorry. I the only one is hearing that, it? Is that better? Is that yes, better? That's much better? better. Much okay. better. Okay, okay, great. So I was saying even even within that particular incident, it it you know, the issue of hiring and, and who lives where is you know, is is very um was was a, was a part of that case as well. Um, there were new officers mm. on the force. Um, there were, you know, we, I I had this conversation before. Um, well, I was having a conversation about police officers and this idea of being patrolled by strangers, and you know, this idea that you know the, the cop, the acronym for cop is constable on patrol. It, the idea was that the the officers were in the community; they were part of the community. And um, it wasn't an outside force that was being brought in. And and so that has, you know, I, I, I read some information a few years back on actually how the Los Angeles police force and their techniques um, and practices under Daryl Gates kind of have become this mode of, of operating that has been exported to places like Brazil and other places where you have, you know, it's more of an occupying force than it is a constables on patrol. 
So I do think, once again, it, it goes back to that involvement that Terry Boykin spoke about. And, you know, how does... Clearly, you know, the, the police department may not allow citizens or any type of other organizations to tell them who to hire and how to hire. However, if they are aware that there are external uh, forces interested in how they're doing their hiring, and um, even when I, you know, uh, talking about the difference between the level of force used when officers know there's a camera involved or not involved, Mm -hmm. Uh, those type of things make a huge difference as far as the preventative aspect of what's going on versus the reactive aspect. When I think about this question, guys, and and I'm going to let you jump right on it, when I think about this question, I think about Zimmerman and what he told one of his professors while he was uh, preparing to be a police officer. And he said he wanted to join the force so he can hunt down the bad guy and kill them. Something mm-hmm. to that nature. And many of these people are hunters. That's what they do as a pastime. So um, while you're thinking about your response, please think about what I just said. Go ahead, sir. Let me tell you what. You, you are right on the... <laughs> You you were right on the button. You have to look at what is the culture of a police officer, the mindset. Uh, What do we basically condition our respective young men and women to pursue as uh, careers? Um, When you look at all the things that are out there, uh, are we basically presenting law enforcement uh, within our communities as well as the teaching profession within our communities Mm -hmm as viable career paths for our respective citizens? And the answer is absolutely not. You have some that actually get into that particular um, path, maybe um, because somebody in their family or they come from uh, maybe the military or they're, they're used to having that particular uh, type of uh, exposure. You hit it right on the button. If this is what I do in my family environment has basically exposed me to this, then I'm going to go into a field with regards to nepotism because I've got a buddy that knows that somebody's hiring in Ferguson. they got good benefits. they got good pay. Uh, I've got these days that I work. I can, I, can, I, can, I can get the adrenaline rush. I can get after the bad guys. I can help, you know, um, rid society of all the evil that's out there. That's not mm-hmm. typically what the image that we're projecting to our, our youth. We're basically glamorizing, look at the media, drug dealers, mm-hmm. shoot them up. I saw, good gracious, they got all these Halloween movies on, and everybody's getting killed like within 30 seconds. Right. Uh, we've got our, the, the individuals that we glorify um, that will basically be the, the killer. We will give him or her an award for killing as many people as possible in that movie, and we will applaud them. And so when it comes down to, you know, when Kirby uh, gave the acronym for COPS, um, this is where they were part of the community, and they were individuals that were going to school or going back to school and getting education and being able to move up in the ranks. And, you know, you, you have a, a, an African-American captain uh, that everybody mm-hmm. knew about that became that. But so, you know, what you said was right on point, you know, in terms of that culture and those individuals, whatever race they may be a part of, that actually mm-hmm. – 
have those attributes to hunt the bad guy down, that's not typically what we are doing in a we, that's not who we are as a people, mm-hmm. and that's not what we've been trained to do. And so, therefore, you know, we've really have kind of looked at this and said, is that even a profession um, right. that we we're interested in going into? And it and it and it's not a profession because the original uh, title and job responsibility for the police was to be a peace officer. You know, in many countries, the policemen don't carry a gun. Exactly. Uh, but our police police officers are not peace officers, and there is a different mindset with the police officer in the white suburb versus in the inner city of the, of the dark um, city dwellers, African Americans and minorities. So when you look at the police officer in the white suburbs, they have the mindset of being a civil servant. They're there to protect and serve. They really are. Uh, if you've ever been stopped in a white, you know, in a, in a, in a small <laughs> white community, it's a whole different <laughs> approach than when you get stopped in the city. You know, yeah, you, you can know. ask for directions. You can ask. You can get directions. You know, they'll show, they'll drive you to a, an area to help you out. In the city, it's a whole different mindset. So we are hiring and allowing um, our officials to hire these nuts. You know, I, I, I'm a little bit impatient with trying to find words to describe them. But the people that we're hiring as police officers, not all of them, but the ones who are getting in trouble, they really are well known within their ranks as being crazy. Um, we're having issues, and no one is saying anything about it. And like you said earlier, it has a lot to do with nepotism and just the culture of the, the police department. I think as a black community, we have to address that culture and nip it in the bud by not allowing it to exist and stopping these high-end practices. Anyone have anything to say before we close out as far as, you know, addressing that concern? No one? Well, I think you said it. I think that... Um, I said enough? You know, I, I think that some of the steps that, that are being taken, um, even though they may not, they may not uh, resonate as loudly as 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 other steps, um, you know. Like I I keep going back to to living and having been in Riverside for so many years. Uh, when I first mm-hmm. moved out here to go to school in 1986, I remember my friends would say, "When you drive by UCR, make sure you take off your baseball hat." And, right. Um, you know, and and I would actually do that because that was part of, you know, what what I believe that the culture Safe. was. And back then, you know, I I I. I was always getting pulled over because my car wasn't right. You know, I was a student. Right? Half the time, my car wasn't registered. But, you know, I do think that, that awareness and, and, and involvement become, you know, elements that, that help us move forward. And like I said before, we all do it in different ways. Um, I wouldn't expect someone who's not a playwright to write a play about what I do, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to write a play. Um, and in the same way that, you know, I wouldn't expect someone, you know, to expect me to go do certain things that are not my strengths. However, I think we, we we get involved in the way that we can be involved just as long as we're doing something to move this thing forward. Wonderful, wonderful. Anyone else have anything to say in closing? Yes, I'd like to say something. I think one of the things we have to recognize is that we're dealing with sick individuals, and they're intoxicated. Power, power intoxicates 
people worse than liquor ever could. And when you have mm. people who are under the intoxication of power and there are no checks and balances, then you end up with somebody that resembles a drug addict out of control. These people are drunk and drugged on power, and we need to have a system that provides the proper checks and balances so that if we find you intoxicated on the job, if, if I came to work intoxicated on liquor or intoxicated on crack or PCP, I would lose my job. But if I come to work intoxicated on power, I just kill another person, and it's within policy. So we need to begin to look at this from different aspects because these people are drunk. Power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we need to find a way as citizens to rein this in because we hire them to protect right. our sacred trust and our community, not the other way around. Wonderful. Anyone else have anything to say? Well, just myself, you know, and working with young men uh, and getting them ready to uh, lead families and be responsible. Uh, I think we have to really call men out, particularly right now. Um, mm -hmm. There should be no able-bodied black man in this country that is not mentoring another young black male in this country. Mm -hmm. That's so should true. Be, and there, there's no reason for it. There's no reason that, you know, each one reach one. Um, you know, I have a, um, a you know, a, a, a download of the Street Positor right now called the Man Plan. I think we just had about 200,000. Um, we just hit about a 200,000 download. And the, the goal of that is to have a black man ask a young man, what is your plan? And there's no reason why we should not be in regular communication and regular contact at least once a week. My challenge is to America with black America, black men, make one contact a week with a young black male that you do not know. That's so true. And I have to um, piggyback off of that because uh, my husband and I, we coached, we volunteered as coaches um, in our community, in the community I grew up in for years. And um, working in the high school, I noticed that there's only room enough for 15 kids out of 3,000, and maybe let's say 1,500 boys, to be on the basketball team. Mm -hmm. And when those children get rejected and don't make the team, when they used to be on the team as midgets, now they have nothing to do. And there's no leagues, there's, there's, no, there's no recreation for these, these teens between the ages of 12 and 21, let's call them. And I think more money from the community, especially these schools, should be diverted from the schools back into the local recreation department and let the local recreation uh, form these, um, these youth leagues, even STEM leagues for robotics and RC racing cars, all these things. If you you know, if you want to mentor young people, recreation is the key, and it should be taken away from the schools and back into the communities because it can be a distraction um, for the school for more reasons than one. But um, that was that will be my very very last question or comment, and I promise I'll let you guys go. Um, if someone could comment on you know, recreation and mentoring young people 
and, you know, diverting the funds away from the school boards back into the recreation department, to the volunteers of the community. Well, you know, I this is Terry, and, you know, it, it goes back to Kirby in, in, in his field and the mm-hmm. performing arts, which we've taken way too much away from. Um, yeah, we, 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 we've taken way too much, and, and, and I think recreation, because you can put that in that classification. Um, mm-hmm. We have to also you talk about uh, accountability, not with the law enforcement, but let's look at our sports mm-hmm. teams. You know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of money that is generated from professional black athletes in this country that never trickles back down to where they groom them, and that's at the elementary and middle school and high school level, that never hits us back. Now, they'll have an athlete uh, wow. uh, that will come back and they'll, they'll, you know, they'll put a camp together and they'll get everybody some lemonade and they'll give them some, you know, some, some shirts, but they'll never invest in their minds. That's so true. I never looked at so, it that way. That's where I think we have to do strategically. I think we have to go after the money where it is basically an investment uh, for giving that young person an opportunity to, like you said, it's only going to be 15, but, you know, you've got all the rest of the young men. What do they do? I mean, how do you get them ready for um, a, a trade? Uh, how do you get them ready for those that want to go into college and they're prepared and, and show interest in that area? Uh, how do they do that? And so I know that, you know, having just worked with, Teen fathers, you got young men that are on these sports teams, uh, 15, mm-hmm. 16 years old. They have children on campus where they play sports, and there is no greater interest in that young man than his ability to perform on the field of play, period. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to let someone else close the show because I, I really I am enjoying this conversation with um you gentlemen, you, you're all very powerful, intelligent, articulate, and we need to have you back on again. Um, you have so many um, ideas and solutions, um, many more than I expected and uh, way more than I had on, on previous shows. And I really appreciate Natasha bringing you guys on to the gist of freedom. I've learned a great deal, and I think people, once they listen to the show, it will get them into thinking and I, I really want to commend the professor, the playwright. I hope you're going to YouTube your productions. And uh, and with that said, give us your contact information, how we can support you, and then the rest of yes. you, if you can add on. Yeah, thank, thank you so much. Um, well, there's a, we have a Facebook page that is Heinz Dreamscape. So it's just H-I-N-D-S Dreamscape. And there's information there. Um, or you can... Even Google my name, or Kirby Hines, uh, or you know, go to the University of California Riverside website and search me, and, and you should be able to find more information there. But I want to thank you so much for um, for giving for giving me and giving us this opportunity to, to have this discussion. It was actually uh, very interesting. You know, I, I thought I was going to be here talking by myself, but it was great to have Terry and, and Terry on uh, breaking down. Yeah, get, get, make sure we Kirby well. signs whatever you get because it's going to be worth a lot of money here uh, in a few years. So make sure you have him sign that. I believe it. I believe it. And, uh, Kirby, please spell your name because it's an unusual name and sometimes yeah, our connection isn't good. Yeah, absolutely. It's R-I-C-K-E-R-B-Y. R-I-C-K-E-R-B-Y. 
Um, okay. And the last name is Hines, H-I-N-E-S. And Terry, thanks for that, man. Don't don't be doing that in public. Yeah, no problem. Man. I appreciate <laughs> that. Yeah. I'm trying to get. I'm still trying to get him to sign his shirt or something for me. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> oh man, thank you so much. And Mr. Boykins, we know that you have a lot going on. Could you give us your contact information? Absolutely. My main focus right now, uh, StreetPositive.com, www.streetpositive.com. Uh, just getting young men over the sign to, to download a copy of the man plan. Uh, we've got mentors that want to assess where these young men are, um, you know, from their emotional well-being, their financial well-being, their academic well-being, and their spiritual well-being. Uh, it's right there on the front page. Uh, mothers of young men, go get a copy of the man plan, download it. There's phone numbers on there. Uh, they get a hold of me, 10-year Terry on the street. that call me 10-year Terry for a reason because I know those young men that are 15 today are going to be 25 real quick, and they're going to have to right. have a whole other different situation. The young men that are 32 are going to be 42 real quick. And so 10-year Terry, man plan, www.streetpositive.com. Wonderful. And Mr. Majors from the NAACP, how can we contact you? Yes, ma'am. I uh, wanted to uh, close out by just thanking the uh, NAACP Riverside Branch for allowing us to develop this project and run with it. Uh, we have the Riverside Gas Company, or Southern California Gas Company, is one of our primary sponsors, along with the uh, Islamic Development Center of Moreno Valley, um, yeah, Word uh, Living Word uh, Christian Church is our next venue after Wednesday. Which is which will be Monday the 27th. We'll have a public forum. We do have confirmation from the chiefs of police uh, in Riverside and some of the lieutenants from the Los Angeles area, and it'll end with a peace rally, peace and freedom rally, uh, November 8th at uh, Crossword Christian Church in Moreno Valley. And finally, following that up uh, to get some of these guns off the street uh, for an exchange of uh, weapons in exchange for food and coupons and benefits. And we really want to carry this movement, if you will, and this message and this work into 2015 because, as I said, it only takes one man mentoring a young man to get him to put that gun down. One less trigger pull is one more son that gets to come home and say, hi, mom, hi, dad. And that makes all of this all the difference in the world. All right. Well, again, thank you for being my guest, all of you tonight on the Gist of Freedom, you can listen to this uh, interview on www.blackhistoryblog.com or on iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. So, again, thank you, and I look forward to having you guys back on uh, very soon. Have a good night. Thank you very much.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.